Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Well, good evening. I don't have a very long message tonight, I don't think. Uh, and I'm getting on kind of early, so... Uh, I'll try to remind you this at the end, but if we do get out before 8 o'clock uh, and you want to hang out, and I know many of you do, and I encourage you to. We've got a great fellowship area and some great fellowship after church on Wednesday nights down at the other end there at the youth room and the snack bar, but wait until they're done, and please wait quietly in that hallway. I encourage you not to go very far down that hallway until you're sure they are done with youth group tonight. Anyway, uh, just listening to Pastor Mike with those announcements. Let's do our best, church, to fill those Sunday school slots, those teacher slots, uh, as soon as possible. Do you know why? Because I get tired of hearing those announcements again and again and again, don't you? And many of you are qualified, uh, so make sure you volunteer and fill those slots. Our children are a great, great resource. I was just thinking today, uh, just out of the blue. There was nothing that made me think of it. I was just kind of mulling over some things. And I was, do you remember, uh, it was a Wednesday night and I preached a sermon about Edward Kimball. Do you remember that? This was the day that Billy Graham died. And I uh, talked about the guy who had led a man to the Lord, who 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 eventually preached to Billy Graham. And uh, this guy was a Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball. Uh, went to talk to a guy at the shoe store that he worked at. And that eventually led to the salvation of Billy Graham, which led to the salvation of millions of souls. And uh, I, I just I can't say enough about the potential impact of teaching in Sunday school. So please, give. This is a year of giving. And that we're encouraging you to give financially uh, in the offerings, of course. But uh, there's, uh, there's more to it than that, isn't there? We want you to give of your time, your resources, your talents. Amen? Amen. I'm out of here. No, I'm kidding. All right, listen. I want to, uh, before I get started, I want, I want to tell you I misspoke Sunday. I was, uh, during the communion meditation, we were looking at, and we'll look at it again tonight, the passage in John where Jesus was encouraging his followers to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And I mentioned then that this was at the very tail end of his ministry. I don't know exactly how I worded it because I never listened to my messages after I preached them anymore. Uh, but I indicated that this was near the end of his ministry because most of John is... Uh, you know, the last week of his ministry. This wasn't quite there, okay? Um, this was more like, and there's, there's not 100% agreement on exactly how long Jesus' earthly ministry was. Most people say three years. A lot of people say, though, it was three and a half years. This was probably, close as we can estimate, about two and a half years into his ministry. Uh, here's what I want you to see, though. When Jesus made these controversial statements, which we will read here in a minute, they had, uh, and this is not an exhaustive list by any means, but they had absolutely been through and experienced and seen and witnessed the following. His conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. The healing of the nobleman's son. The healing of Peter's mother-in-law from the fever. The healing of the leper. The healing of the paralytic the healing of the lame man, the healing of multitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, the healing of the centurion's servant, the raising of the dead of the son of the widow of Nain, 
his anointing by the sinful uh, woman at Simon's house, multiple sermons, parables, uh, including the Sermon on the Mount, the calming of the sea, the gathering demoniac, Jairus' daughter raised from the dead, the woman with the issue of blood healed, the healing of blind men, and their own ministry as Jesus sent them out two by two. All of this had taken place before this conversation. He had also walked on water. And again, many more teaching sermons and parables. And then in John 6, he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Let's read it again in John chapter 6. We will begin in verse 32. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me I should lose, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then complained about him, because he said, I am the bread, of, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? This is, a reasonable que- this is a reasonable question, and Jesus has, has addressed this before uh, when he talked about a prophet uh, being welcome everywhere except in his hometown. Uh, the struggle they were having with Jesus in these words, the, the words are tough enough. But here he is saying, I came down from heaven, and they're like, we remember him when he was a kid. We know his parents. So they're really struggling with this, and it's hard to fault them for it, but let's read on. Jesus therefore answered them, verse 33, uh, 43. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Let me stop there. This is a, a rabbit trail. It's not in my notes. It's just something, and it's something I've talked about before. But a very famous passage, and one of my absolute favorites as uh, as. You know, you know I, I love apologetics. Uh, when we talk about the very issue of truth, and uh, it's a tough, tough deal these days when, uh, when what we're faced with as a culture is, come on, be tolerant. Everybody believes what works for them. Why can't, uh, you know, just get along with everybody. So long, long, just respect everybody's belief. But Jesus said one of, if he'd said what he said today, what he said then, if he said it today, it would, be, it would certainly count as one of the most intolerant things in history. When he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. I am the only way. 
I remember having this conversation. I've shared this story with you before. It's been, it's probably been a few months anyway. I love it. Uh, and I don't know if you remember the guy. I won't name him, but he was a professor of mine at Parkland. He was a, a philosophy professor, and I had him for a religion class. And uh, I took the class, Religion 101, because I thought what it was was going to be a, you know, 101, Religion 101. What's that sound like to you? I didn't read the description. I thought it was going to be like a survey. I'm going to learn a little bit about Islam. I'm going to learn a little bit about Hinduism and Buddhism. I knew I, I, wasn't ex- I knew I was a Christian. I just figured it would help me as a Christian to understand a little bit about these world religions. But that wasn't what the class was. The class was a philosophy class on the nature of religious belief. And, and, and this guy, and I love it. Looking back, I appreciate the guy's uh, point his thesis was, you don't have a right, as an American, you have a, a, a right to believe whatever you want, but intellectually, you don't have the right to believe anything you can't defend. And so his whole, the, everything he was leading to in class was, what is your most cherished belief? Right. And so he forced us to think about these things. And, uh, uh, oh, wow, the things that he, that, that, that he said that, that just irritated me. And I remember, uh, there, there are a couple great stories uh, that I've shared before and that I'll share again, I'm sure. But I remember one conversation we were having, and my apologies to those of you who remember it, uh, was we were walking down the stairs one day after class, and he says, what are you going to write your paper on? Because we had to write a paper on our most cherished belief. And I said, I'm going to write a paper on the resurrection. And he said, really? He stopped. We were, we're in the middle of the stairwell, and he, said, and he was stunned. Why that? And he knew I was a Christian because we'd been, we'd been going at it in class for a number of months. And I said, well, I, because it's the central point of Christianity. He goes, oh, I disagree. I disagree. Why, why did Jesus have to rise from the dead for us to take his message of love and peace seriously? So, and this is the, the conversation we had then was, what paper do you want me to write? Do you want me to write a paper to explaining to you why this is important, or why I believe the resurrection, because I'm not going to write two papers. So I ended up writing a paper about why the resurrection was important to Christianity. But years later, years later, I I was driving out to Parkland for I have no idea what. And I happened to see this guy walking through the field. He was walking through the grass to catch a bus or something, and I recognized him as this professor. So I hollered at him. I said, hey, guy. I I hollered by by his first name so that he would respond. And he came running right over to the car. I said, do you need a ride? He said, yeah, I'd appreciate it. And he hops in the car, and I'm I'm taking him home. I said, I don't know if you remember me. And so I reminded him, this this has been, oh, my goodness, it had been uh, nearly 20 years at this point, Uh, 15 at least. And so I was telling him, he goes, yeah, so where do you you stand now? Do you still believe this stuff? I said, yeah, I believe it. Uh, I believe it even more. And he said, well, let me ask you this, blah, blah, blah. So he says, do you remember when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No, he, he said, remember when Jesus said, uh, I quoted something. I said, and so I quoted, I quoted to him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He said, yes, I've, I've, I've read that, and I struggled with it. But maybe, if, may, have you ever thought what he meant was, God is at the top of this mountain. And when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, He's saying, you might take this path, and you might take this path, and another guy might take this path, but eventually they're going to all lead to the same truth. And I I remember everything just happened in like five seconds. I remember asking myself in that moment, I really did, 
how would this question have hit me when I was 19 and taking this class for the first time? But what I immediately responded was, you know, that question would be valid if he said, you know, I'm going to show you the way and I'm going to tell you the truth and I'm going to lead you to the life. But he didn't. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He was being very exclusive on purpose. And he looked at me and he said, that's a good answer. And I didn't say anything, but what I thought was, you're darn right, that's a good answer. But Jesus was being pretty exclusive when he said that, right? Now, let's go back to, what, back to this. How did I get completely off on that? Where was I? What verse was I in? Anybody remember? 41. Jews then complained about him because he said, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus? Yes, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. How is it then? We, he says, I am the bread come down from heaven. Then he says, do not murmur among yourselves. Verse 44. No one can come to me except the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. That's where I was going. We talk about how I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus. But this is where Jesus says, the only way anybody is going to come to me is if the Father draws him. And this is huge. And I'm not going to, this is a complete different sermon. I just want to throw this out there. This is one of the most important passages about prayer. If we're going to be praying for people, this is what we have to remember. I want, there are people that I know, I was just talking to Doug before service, he was talking about an atheist friend of his, I've got, there, there are a couple of people, uh, you remember, I don't remember, man, I need to start writing down dates, but we were talking about writing down a list of names of people we're going to pray for. Uh, Dwight Moody, this is the third time I've mentioned this story, Dwight Moody, when, uh, when he died, uh, they just, there, were, there, was a, uh, there was a list of 100 people that he carried around in his pocket that he prayed for their salvation every day. And so I think, I, I, I can't remember the exact number, but I think 96 of them had been saved by the time he died. And the last four of them got saved at his funeral. But he prayed for them every day. And, uh, and I've got a list like this. And, and uh, I'll confess to you, I don't pray for them every day. But there are at least two of these guys, no, three of these guys on my list that are stone atheists as far as I know. But I continue to pray for them. But I know the only way, ultimately, they are going to turn to Jesus is if the Father draws them. Now, I don't know how he's going to do that. I pray for, him to, I pray for God to send the right people across his, their path. I pray for them to be stirred up in their sleep. I pray for them to be troubled. I pray for whatever needs to happen, happens for them so that, they are, so that their eyes are open to Jesus Christ. But this is a great passage here to remind us that this is ultimately a supernatural, spiritual happening they are not nobody is ever pure our preaching is absolutely important that's why we're commanded to preach but nobody is ever converted purely through logic or teaching or preaching all right no matter how good you are now verse 45 it is written in the prophets and they shall all be taught by god therefore everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. He's talking about himself. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh. 
which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up to the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And as I mentioned in the communion message, uh, I, I think most of you were probably here. This was a pretty upsetting message that Jesus gave. It's one thing to read it in the Bible. It's another thing to hear a guy say this. But remember a number of the people that were, not just the 12, and probably not just the 120, but many of the people who were hearing him speak had heard him speak before. They were following him and listening to him for a reason. And now he says this, I want you to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the Jews are like, well, this, this doesn't sound right. So he emphasizes it, and he almost makes it harder. I'm telling you, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. But if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have eternal life. The manna, and he refers to the manna because the Jews were so in love with Moses. Moses was the guy. He was the prophet. Oh, the miracles that took place in Israel, the people of Israel, because Israel wasn't a nation yet, but the people, the Israelites, the, the Hebrews, uh, the descendants of Jacob in the wilderness ate of miraculous food, this manna. I mean, it was food that God himself sent down from heaven, and, and Jesus is saying, yeah, they ate that, and they died. So just ultimately, how miraculous was that food? It kept them alive for a day. It kept them alive, you know, seven days a week. Gave it six days a week, but they gave them, you know, an extra, extra portion on the sixth so they could eat it on the seventh. But they all died. He said, I'm telling you, if you eat my flesh, you'll live forever. This is a hard thing for them to hear. Let's keep going, though. Picking up in verse 60, we'll just read a few more verses. In verse 60, it says, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? <laughs> what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore... I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ the son of the living God. I'm not going to spend much time on it because I, I've mentioned it before and I mentioned it Sunday. But this 
is a crucial passage to me. Every time I read this, something really penetrates me because the answer Jesus gets when he asks, are you going to leave me too, was not the answer that I would expect. The answer I would expect was, Lord, we'll never leave you. We love everything you say, we love everything you do, and we are behind you 100%. But what I read between the lines in this answer, where are we to go, is, uh, you know, we kind of would if we could, because this saying freaks us out too. But we're not going anywhere, because we know you have words of life, and we've come to recognize who you are. This is where every believer, I believe, comes to Jesus at a point, after you believe, I mean. There's a couple observations I want to make here, and then I'll close. Number one, please recognize, even though, again, I misspoke Sunday saying this was at the very end of his ministry, he did not show up out of the blue and start talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He preached, he taught, he healed, and he did miracles. And he lived with these guys. They knew him. So on one hand, he's appealing to their experience with him and their knowledge of him. Do you remember a few weeks ago on Sunday, we were looking, when we were studying Romans chapter 4, we looked at Hebrews chapter 11. Let me read that to you. You can turn there if you want. But in Hebrews 11, 11, when he's going through the hall of faith, the author of Hebrews, talking about Sarah, says in verse 11, by faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. And uh, we spent quite a bit of time that Sunday talking about that, how there was whatever it was. You, know, you, you got you to gotta remember, God called Abram to leave Ur of the Chaldeans to go to a land that he would show him. And it was a number of years later quite a number of years later, that they finally uh, conceived Isaac, the child of promise. They had been experiencing God's provision. They had been experiencing the fulfillment of God's promises in their lives. They had some experience with him. And, uh, or maybe it was just the appearance. It, you know, when it tells us that God it tells Abraham to leave, it doesn't tell us exactly how he appeared, how this word came. Did he have a vision? Did he have a dream? Was it purely audible? Was it, was it also visual? I don't know. But they had enough experience with God in their lives, starting from that call in Ur, to judge him faithful who had promised. It was a character judgment, not a logic judgment. I, I can't stress that enough, and I, this is what we spent all that Sunday on, was talking about the promise itself didn't have a lot of logic behind it. They were both well past the age of childbearing, but they judged God faithful, right? So, Jesus is appealing to his disciples, and he says, you know me. They had seen enough of Jesus' ministry, his miracles, and his teaching and preaching, so that when it came time, came to this moment when he starts delivering a very hard message, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. I'm not sure, in fact, I'm quite sure, they didn't understand it any more than the people who left him. But they still believed him. Lord, this is a hard saying, but we can't go anywhere because we know who you are. 
and we're going to trust you. Whether, whether we get insight into this, whether we understand it any more an hour from now or a week from now than we do now, we still trust you. The other angle is this. If you will believe in faith, you will see greater things. Something I'm not quite able to nail down. I've looked through a couple of uh, harmonies of the gospel and things, trying to get a timeline here because not everything that's recorded in Mark and Matthew and Luke and John is recorded in all the other three. But you remember the, the, uh, the transfiguration. There's a time when Jesus takes Peter and John uh, up, to, up the mountain, uh, and uh, Peter, James, and John up the mountain, and he is actually revealed in his glory. They see him as he was in heaven, glorified, shining with, in the presence of Moses and Elijah. And their response was, you know, they bow down and they're like, we need to build three tabernacles right now. We'll, we'll build these altars and one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And, uh, and they hear the voice of God saying, this is my son, listen to him. This is, this is, what, this is a central event in the gospel story. What I cannot tell you for sure is has this happened yet when Jesus is having this conversation. I happen to believe it happened shortly afterward, but I can't say for sure. But here's what I want you to see. In uh, verse 62, when Jesus says, we're still in John chapter 6. In John 6 verse 62, he says, What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? He could be referring to the transfiguration that they were about to witness. But even if he wasn't, guess what they did witness? They witnessed the ascension when he actually physically ascended into heaven before the day of Pentecost. So we have two ways of looking at this thing, and they are complementary. They are not contradictory. One is this. Always look at and remember everything God has done. My favorite passage for this principle is Psalm 136. You can turn there if you want. I'm just going to read a few verses. Uh, beginning in verse 1, it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. This is that psalm where every other line is, his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his mercy endures forever. To him who by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endures forever. To him who laid out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endures forever. To him who made great lights, for his mercy endures forever. To the, to, uh, the sun to rule by day, etc. The moon and stars to rule by night, for his mercy endures forever. Now, now he's talking about creation here. This is that God, the God who made everything. But then he shifts in the next verse to specific historic events in Israel's uh, experience. To him, verse 10, who struck Egypt in their firstborn, for his mercy endures forever. 
and brought out Israel from among them, for his mercy endures forever. With a strong hand and with an outstretched arm, verse 13, to him who divided the Red Sea in two, verse 14, and he made Israel pass through the midst of it, but overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, to him who led his people through the wilderness, to him who struck down great kings, for his mercy endures forever. And he even gets more specific and starts naming the kings. He's going through the history saying, look, don't forget this God who has done great things, specific things, things in our history, things we can remember. Why? Because when we remember what he's done, it's easy to believe him when he says what he will do. That's the first principle. When you have seen what God has done, it's easier to believe what he will do. The second principle, though, is this. Believe first, and then you will see. And uh, I'm thinking of Thomas here in John chapter 20. John 20, beginning in verse 24. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen, this is after the resurrection. I should have set that up. So he said to them, unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, where the spear had pierced, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands. Reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. And this is where the... You've all heard of a doubting Thomas, right? The skeptic. Thomas deserves a better moniker than that. Uh, tradition tells us, and it's a pretty strongly supported tradition, that, that Thomas went to India with the gospel. Ravi Zacharias, who's my favorite apologist, uh, really gives Thomas a lot of credit for bringing the gospel to India and ultimately uh, filtering down through, this, through the... Uh, centuries and generations to him and his family uh, and he was martyred there so Thomas and, and, and it's also interesting I don't know how, how important it is but you know Thomas said unless I put my finger in those holes in his hands and put my hand in his side I'm not going to believe but Jesus says hey put your fingers here put your hand here and Thomas just says Lord I believe it. there's no indication that he really had to touch Jesus as soon as Jesus spoke he believed But I love what Jesus said. You know, he, he's not necessarily, he's not rebuking Thomas. Thomas said, hey, man, I, I would love to believe these reports. I want to believe Jesus is alive, but I know he died. He was crucified. That's a fact. Those nails went into his hand and that spear went into his side. Much as I want to believe, I can't stake my life on something unless I'm sure. I've got to put my finger in those holes in his hands, my hand in that hole in his side. What does Jesus say when he shows up? Shame on you, Thomas. 
you should have believed what everybody said. No, he said, here they are. Put your finger in there. And Thomas is like, never mind, I believe. He offers him the proof that he needs. But he also says this, because you've seen, you believe. But blessed are those who believe who have not seen. That's you and me in many, many cases. We've got to look at Psalm 136. We've got to look at the Gospels themselves. But we also really need to look at our lives. Look back and say, where has God been faithful in my life? Now listen, I don't want you raising your hand if you're just like in, in a general sense. How many of you honestly can look back at a specific time in your life where God literally came through for you? Whether he healed you, met a need, whatever. I, yeah, that's almost everybody in here. These are the kind of things we look back. His mercy endures forever. The God, he split the Red Sea. He drowned Pharaoh's army. He killed these kings. He fed us in the wilderness and he healed my back. We look at these things he did for us. And then we look at the promises in his word. Praise and worship team, come on up here. We look at the promises in his word and say, what has he promised to do that I'm not currently experiencing? Has he promised to heal all of our diseases? I believe he absolutely has. Has he promised to meet all of our needs? Not just meet them, but meet them according to his riches in glory. Yes, he has. Am I experiencing that? I'm not. Are you? Maybe you are, maybe you're not. Are you experiencing absolute 100% manifestation of his healing power? Maybe, you're, maybe you are, maybe you're not. But his promise is still true. And we latch onto that and think, his mercy endures forever. His word is true. His promise is true. How do I know it? Because look at history. Look what he's done down through the centuries all the way up to and including my life. And, but then we look and say, but if it was true, I'd be experiencing it now. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. We can look back and be encouraged by what he has done, but remember that he has not yet raised us from the dead. Is this a promise we're trusting in? That's an easy one to believe because that's eh, a far off future, we hope. Do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? I do. That's the, that is the core of Christianity. So can I believe lesser promises like provision and healing? I absolutely can. Ravi Zacharias put it this way. God has put enough into this world to make faith in him a most reasonable thing. He has left enough out to make it impossible to live by sheer reason alone. Let me read that again. God has put enough into this world to make faith in him a most reasonable thing. He has left enough out to make it impossible to live by sheer reason alone. He doesn't just show up on the scene and say, believe in me because I'm God. And this is one of the, uh, one of those, uh, I don't know, uh, straw man that the atheists would throw out there. Oh, God just expects us to believe in him for no reason just because... Uh, Oh, we're supposed to believe the, word, the, the Bible is the Word of God because the Bible says the Bible is the Word of God. That's not what God does. He puts enough of himself and enough evidence. Just go back a few weeks to Romans 1, four or five Sundays when we were looking at Romans 1, and Paul makes that case better than anybody else. 
there's enough in this world for anybody to recognize that there's a God. Right? And so faith is a reasonable proposition. But we cannot live by reason alone. There's just enough there for us to latch on to God and believe and take the next step. If God is real, if this is his word, and we take this progressively. And everybody in here, as far as I know, believes in God, believes Jesus Christ is God, and believes that the Bible is the word of God. So we've got these specific promises, and so we look at these and say, all right, I'm not seeing this in my life, but how hard is it for me believing everything in the, Bi- in the Bible How hard is it for me to believe that what he has promised, even though I'm not seeing it in my life right now, how hard is it for me to believe that it is true and that it is for me? And therefore, how do I speak? This is kind of the application. Stand up with me. Because I'm going to give an invitation here in a second, but I want you to remember this. As believers, I always go back to what Jesus said. Mark eleven twenty three and 24. Say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, be thou cast into the sea. Don't doubt in your heart. Believe what you say. What has it got to be based on? It's got to be based on God's word. But what's, what the central message of that is there's power in what I say, power in what I speak. If I'm saying, well, I trust God. I trust God to meet all my needs. But I'm saying, if, if everything I'm saying is, I can't get out from under this mountain of debt. If I'm saying, I trust God to heal me. But everything I'm, if, I, if, I, if I'm believing, sorry, if, if, I, if, I, if, I, if I tell you out of one side of my mouth, I, I believe God's will is to heal me. But everything that's coming out of my mouth is, well, my dad had this, my mom had this, my grandfather had this, it's probably what I got too. They only live to be 61, so that's probably all I'm going to be, live to be. Whatever. What are, what are we going to be slaves to? What are we, what are we going to be uh, bound to? Our genetics, science, history, or the Word of God? What does the Word of God say? With long life, I will satisfy you and show you my salvation. I will meet all your needs. I will, I will meet all your needs according. According, I will supply, sorry, I will supply all your need according to my riches in glory. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. These are things that need to be coming out of our mouths, people, because our words have power. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.